all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We are going to continue our trend for the past couple of weeks and take your questions related to COVID-19, as well as your general health and wellness questions. If you have one for us, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can send us an email, fit at mpbonline.org, or you can hop on over to my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, and interact with me there. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Josie. Hope you're doing well this morning. I am. I would be remiss if I did not wish my husband a happy anniversary. Today is our 18th wedding anniversary, and so what good is having a radio show if you can't give him a shout out? <laughs> for that. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. I think we have a caller already. So I think we can hop on over to the phone lines and talk with Norris and Wiggins this morning. Good morning. How are you today? We are fine. How are you? I am fine. I'm so far so good. No complaints. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. How can we help you today? Yes. Listen, um, I have a dentist appointment in a couple of days. I can I canceled it once before. You know, I, I'm a little leery about going to the dentist and having them to be right into my face, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. having the dental work done. I mean, how how nervous should I be about this? And should I go ahead and keep this appointment? Because my tooth is not hurting or anything, but it do need work. <laughs> yeah. So that's a a question that we kind of have to look at from lots of of different angles, right? One, if your dentist is open, then they are meeting all of the recommendations from the health department about how to keep you and themselves safe. Um, So that's one. Two, you can always call and ask them what the procedure is going to be for for limiting contact with others. You know, are they going to have you wait in your car before, you know, and kind of call you when it's your turn, uh, you know, what's the, the sanitation between, um, between patients, that kind of thing. And then, you know, looking at the, the risk and benefit of what you need to have done, right? So is it an urgent situation? Is it more preventive care? Now, obviously, I fully endorse preventive care. It's very important to take care of your teeth. They have Um, a ton of links between dental health and heart health and making sure your blood sugar is under control and all of these different kinds of things. So I don't necessarily think it's something that you have to to put off um, if it it needs to be done. You also want to look at what your risk factors are. You know, if you're 
very immunocompromised, if you're on, you know, if you're on uh, chemotherapy or steroids or something like that, that's going to lower your immune system, then obviously you're a little bit more high risk. And that would, again, be kind of a conversation to have with the dentist and with the dental staff um, to, to talk about how they're going to keep you safe, because that's their top goal is to keep you safe as well as to keep the staff um, safe yeah. during this time. Okay. So that was a, a, an answer that didn't fully answer your question, but, <laughs> but I think it, it's definitely something that if you're uncomfortable with, just have a really frank conversation with the dental staff on the phone that, you know, you have your, some concerns and let them address how, their, what their plan is that they have in place for safety. Okay, that was very informative. That was some information that I, I did need. I did need to know those things. But like you said, I, I didn't call them or ask them about, you know, their procedures as far as waiting or, you know, handling, you know, safety. Yeah. So I'm glad I, I did. You guys, I'm glad I did. You did tell me some things that I didn't even take into consideration, so I thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. I thank you for giving us a call today. Uh, Josie, if I could jump in here in just a minute, because I sure. had a, a dental appointment scheduled for earlier in May, and it was funny because the week prior to, I, I called on and said, well, certainly, the, you know, this has got to be delayed, and they actually had said uh, that they were in the process of being able to open up, and so the next day, the hygienist that I work with called me, and she said, you know, we got these procedures that we need to go through. Uh, you need to, they were going to send me a form to fill out about, um, you know, my general health uh, the, a disclaimer saying, I realize that there might be uh, an elevated risk for COVID-19 if I do the dental checkup, uh, that sort of thing. I was supposed to go uh, stay in the parking lot. They were going to come out and take my temperature. Uh, then when we went in, they were going to do a hand-washing thing and then something with peroxide and that sort of thing. And uh, they were going to have the masks on, um, which they always do anyway. Uh, but we're going through this, and I I felt a little bit uh, confident that they had things handled. But then they called back right the day before uh, I was supposed to go in and said for some reason that they were told that they were not allowed to open yet. So mm. uh, I'm waiting to see uh, what it is. But, you know, uh, to me, you know, the the longer uh, it is, the the more time they have to do all the proper procedures and set up so that the, 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 the people are, are safe when they go for their checkups and things. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's something that I kind of want to highlight as well is, you know, we, we shut down initially because we were trying to flatten that curve and really, you know, prevent the healthcare system from being overwhelmed, as well as making sure that the individuals that were highest risk um, in the healthcare system had access to the appropriate PPE. Um, and now we're starting to open things back up, especially from a healthcare perspective, because Routine preventive health care is important. You know, if we need pap smears and mammograms and, um, you know, heart checkups and, and those kinds of things, those are still important. And we don't want people to be uh, not seeking care when they need to have things done. It's just always a great idea to, to have a really good conversation with the clinic or the healthcare system that you're going to be interacting with. And they're, I mean, they're more than happy to talk with you about the processes they have in place because our job as healthcare providers is to keep you healthy. And so that's what we're trying to do. 
Uh, Josie, I think you got a couple of emails that we got uh, in uh, over the last week or so and uh, that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so they, these came in kind of right at the end of the show last week, and they are kind of general health questions. So that that's fantastic. We're happy to take those in addition to the COVID-19 questions. Um, if you've got a question for us, that number is one eight seven seven mpb ring um, But I'll start with the first one because it kind of piggybacks on um, what we were just talking about with healthcare providers. This says, where can I find a primary care provider focused on natural treatments, herbs, alternative treatments rather than chemicals and medicines. And so there's a couple of things I want to kind of unpack there. The first is that um, just because something is natural doesn't mean it's um, appropriate, right? Uh, So it doesn't mean it necessarily works. So we want to make sure that anytime we're using natural treatments or alternative treatments, herbs, um, those kinds of things that we've got good data that show that they work or at least that they don't cause harm. You know, that that's the other part there is that we don't want anything that has no safety data on it or um, that might interact with something else that you're already on. We've talked a lot about supplements on this show and making sure that um, if you're using supplements that you're talking with your care provider about what those are to make sure that there are no interactions between any other medicines that you're on, any other herbs that you're on, um, or any um, medical conditions that you have. Second part is making sure that those are are, um, obtained from a a reputable source because supplements are not, uh, that don't go through FDA approval. Uh, You want to make sure that we're buying good quality, good, reputable branded stuff so that it reasonably has what it says it has in there. We've talked about that USP seal before, kind of being a, um, a little bit of a comfort level with that. Um, and the second is that medicines, traditional medicines that we use, aren't necessarily a bad thing. You know, I always say my job as in lifestyle medicine is to help get people off of medicines, but that doesn't mean that I'm anti-medicine. There are lots of medicines out there that are life-sustaining, and so I, I still put people on blood pressure medicine or blood sugar medicine, those different types of things while we're working on um, maybe improving diet or physical activity or sleep or stress or all those different things that are affecting these conditions to prevent long-term damage. And then we can come, hopefully, come back down off of those medications. So all that to say, I don't want people to think of traditional medicine in a negative sense. It is absolutely um, a necessary part in certain medical conditions and for certain people. Now, in terms of where you can find a a provider that does that, um, if you're looking for maybe someone that does more nutrition type stuff, so more food-based treatments, then plantbaseddocs.com is a good place to start. Um, because it shows people uh, that by area that have an interest or, or a focus in using plant-based nutrition to help with disease management. I'm on there, um, as well as some other folks in, in Mississippi. And then um, integrative health is a, a place to start looking as well, because um, I'd less like the word alternative treatment and more like the word complementary treatment so that we're using things from the traditional medical model as well as things that we know complement 
that. So that may be you know, acupuncture or massage therapy or aromatherapy, um, reflexology, different kinds of things in there, as well as um, your mindfulness and meditation and stress reduction techniques. So you can kind of do a, a quick internet search for integrative health providers in your area. Uh, and that should hopefully produce a list of some, some folks who ascribe to the model of incorporation of a variety of techniques, whether it be medicine or complementary therapies. So that's my spiel on that one. I hope that helped out a little bit. If it didn't, you can always email me again at fit at mpbonline.org and I'll try and point you in a better direction. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at UMMC. We're taking your questions and comments today about COVID-19, as well as your general health and wellness questions. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Our email is fit at mpbonline.org. And you can interact with me over on Facebook at Healthy Habits with Josie. All right, Kevin, I think you had a burning question. I do, but it can wait because we've got some callers on the line that uh, snuck in there right at the last minute during our break. (laughs) Time out. Okay. All right. So we will start again. Um, Here is Scott from Natchez. Go ahead, Scott. You're on the air with us. Well, first, I'd like to say happy anniversary. It's my anniversary and my wife's anniversary today also. Well, happy anniversary to you. It was a great day for marriages. Yep, it's 29 years for us. Well, fantastic. My daughter uh, works at a laboratory, that, uh, and she's been doing quite a few of the COVID-19 tests. Mm-hmm. And uh, before she started working there, they gave her a COVID test to make sure that she was, you know, clear. But I was just curious... I talk to her and I listen to the procedures and all that she has to go through when she's doing the testing the samples. But I wonder how often it would be recommended that somebody that works in a lab like that get tested. Excellent question. So, you know, the majority of testing that's done is with the, the nasal swab. 
um, which is usually a, something called a PCR test. And so that's looking for virus that's present right now. And so the results of that test are only as accurate as the, the time in which they were collected, right? So if I go today and get a swab and it comes back negative, then it just means kind of right at that moment, I don't have it, but I could get exposed in the future um, and, and develop that. Then when there are antibody tests that some are coming on uh, use now, there are kind of two antibodies that we look at. One is called IgG and one is called IgM. Um, an IgM is usually the antibody that we see when there's an active infection. And IgG is usually the one that we see when there is um, kind of if you've had it in the, in the past. The issue that some of the antibody tests have, have been having is um, kind of cross-reactivity. You know, we talked about coronavirus that, that while COVID-19 is a new strain of coronavirus, there are other strains of coronavirus that have been around that have just kind of caused the common cold. And so I think there was some issues with some of the antibody tests at the beginning, knowing whether this was a specific antibody to, to COVID-19. Those tests are getting better um, with, with time. So to answer your question about how often they should get tested, that direction would come from the state health officer about how often they would need to get tested. I've seen some in, uh, some places that test their employees every week, um, but really it's kind of up to the individual lab as well as determining the level of risk of exposure for them and then in conjunction with the health department to decide how quickly they would need to be have repeat testing done. Right. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, she had the nasal swab yeah. test done, and I think they'd have to hold her down to get her to do that again. <laughs> yes, it's much deeper than people think it is, um, especially if you've had kind of a, a regular flu swab. They're technically the same test, but uh, I don't think everybody swabs as deep on the regular flu swab as they as we've been instructed to do on the COVID test, although that is the correct procedure. So it's it's you know it's back at the very back of the the nasal cavity so it's a deep swab but it's you know it's it's not unbearable um but yeah it's not something that a lot of folks line up for for fun time all right well i appreciate your time you're welcome happy anniversary all right we've got katie and byram on the line we'll go ahead and talk with katie good morning katie good morning i just have one question about COVID 19 I'm just curious as to whether one can contract the virus through your eyes. And I'll take my answer off the air. Great. And so your eyes technically are a mucous membrane that are connected to the respiratory tract. So there is a potential there. We more likely see inhaled droplets or things that are deposited directly to the um, nasal cavity or inhaled into the nasal cavity. Um, but any of those uh, mucous membranes that are not um, like I don't want to think about food and eating food. There's not been any cases linked to anything on food being transmitted through the oral cavity. Um, but eyes and nose are um, definitely potentials. That's why you'll see healthcare workers wear a mask and then some also some kind of shield that goes in front of their face. And that's most likely uh, because of our degree of closeness to the individual uh, and um, risk of procedures that generate more 
sputum or more more droplets when we're doing things to protect directly being kind of coughed or sneezed into our eye. All right, do we have one more caller? Yeah, Robert down in Gulfport. Good morning, Good morning. Robert. Good morning. Um, I, I guess I have a pretty uh, bland call here. It's not about the coronavirus. <laughs> That's I was, okay. I was sitting in my backyard with my three dogs on the backyard deck, and a fly landed on my wrist. And uh, I just kind of blew at the fly to get him off my wrist, and it didn't move. And then when I brushed it off, it took a big hunk of my wrist skin out with it. Now, <clears throat> the fly was a normal size, but it had like a yellow skin to it. And the, uh, the, the bite, you could see that there were two distinct holes where a chunk came out of and it. Right now, the wound is about, if you can figure, uh, you know, one of the old number two lead pencils, uh, the mm -hmm. wound is about the size of one of the erasers that was on top of that pencil. Do we have, I know we got killer hornets out there. Do we have killer flies <laughs> out there? I have not heard of killer flies. My goodness. Um, that is definitely not uh, something that I have heard going on. You didn't have any kind of extra redness or swelling or anything around the area that you would have um, after uh, just a regular, you know, bite or sting? Well, the first, you know, like a, a normal mosquito bite, I'm used to it, usually, you know, doesn't draw blood. Um, mm -hmm. It may just a, a little bit, but this thing, it was, it was like, the fly wasn't really that much bigger than a normal fly. The only thing that's mm -hmm. different about it is it did have like a yellow tint to it. But like I said, it took huh. a big chunk out of my wrist. And so I just wondered if there was something out there that, uh, you know, just another another thing to put on the list of us to worry about. I don't think there's anything huge out there that, that we need to add to the list. You know, my thought, which they, they don't normally have a yellow color, but a, a horse fly kind of is a bigger looking version of a regular fly and they will bite or sting and cause um, pain and discomfort. So that could be what you had going on there. Um, make sure that you wash it really well with soap and water. Doesn't have to be any fancy antibacterial soap, anything like that. Just, you know, wash it, get it, get it good and clean, pat it dry. Um, and then you can apply, you know, just an antibiotic ointment cream like a Neosporin or a Bacitracid and something like that and just keep it kind of kind of clean and look for any signs of infection that would be increased redness or warmth or drainage that comes from it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I just think that stay safe is very good words to live by. They are. I need it on a T-shirt. <laughs> thank you very much, ma'am. You're welcome. Have a great one. Hey, Josie, I just did a quick uh, Google search of yellow biting fly. Okay, what'd you get? Um, and it says in Florida, uh, the name yellow fly is commonly used to describe a group of about a dozen different yellow-bodied biting flies in the something or other family. So, um, hmm. <laughs> and he was on the Gulf Coast, so maybe. Uh, yeah, so maybe. Maybe some of those dang flies have migrated over from uh from Florida to to the Gulf Coast, it sounds sounded painful though. It's one of those where you kind of cringe uh, when when he was describing that. So it did. I will not tell my children about it because you should hear my almost twelve year old scream when he sees a wasp or a bee. It is, <laughs> it's special. Uh, you've got some more emails there, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to do your question or hop to the emails? Uh, let's hold my question for the next uh, segment. Let's do one email and we'll take another break. 
Fantastic. All right, so we have an email coming in asking about um, a shrimp allergy. So this person is allergic to shrimp, and they're asking, does that mean that they can't eat lobsters, scallops, crab, or oysters? And so let's uh, think about, uh, about that. So when we talk about shrimp and a shrimp allergy, we're usually talking about a shellfish allergy. And when we look at shellfish, there's kind of two um, main clusters. There's your crustaceans and then your mollusks. And so your crustaceans are the ones that kind of wear their shell like a suit. So your things like shrimp, lobster, crab, they have that exoskeleton. And then mollusks are things that have more like a, a bivalve shell on them. So things that open and close like a scallop or an oyster, clams, mussels, those kinds of things. And so some people that are allergic to shrimp most of them are also allergic to the things that fall in the crustacean stage. So the, the lobster and the crab as well. Um, some people with a shrimp allergy can eat the mollusks. So the oysters, the scallops, the clams, the mussels, those types of things. But food allergies are nothing to mess around with. So it's not something that you just want to experiment with on your own that would be a consult with an allergist to see if you are only allergic to the shellfish category or are you allergic to all, uh, I mean, sorry, allergic to just the crustacean category or are you allergic to all shellfish in general? I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMC. And we're answering your questions about COVID-19, as well as your general health and wellness questions. Our number is one mpb ring You can email us, fit at mpbonline.org, or hop on over to my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, and shoot me a message there. Uh, Josie, during the break we chatted, I looked a little further on my Google uh, search on the yellow biting flies uh, and found out that there are five different sorts of yellow flies in Florida. Uh, they are active during the months of May and June, and they are known to be aggressive biters. So, Robert, I think uh, that's probably uh, maybe what you got bit by is one of the flies that made its way over uh, from the Sunshine State. Yeah, that that is uh, – keep them down there. Oh, I don't, I don't <laughs> want them up here. 
Okay. So Although my my mosquitoes could probably take them out. I got some big <laughs> ones going on in my backyard. Uh, the question I had is, uh, we've heard a lot about uh, developing a vaccine, and I know that's something that all we're all anxious uh, to get to. But I'm wondering, is uh, parallel to that, are they working on medicines that would be treatment for COVID-19? And, you know, what would a treatment mean? Uh, and is it important that sort of both uh, paths continue on? Absolutely. So, yes to both. Um, vaccine work is continuing, medication work um, our treatment work is continuing and both of them are important, right? Uh, because we want to use the vaccine to prevent the, the spread of COVID-19. You know, we talked last week about herd immunity and if enough people are, are vaccinated or have natural immunity, then it kind of prevents it from running rampant in the society. That's why it's been so bad because none of us had really had antibodies, um, to this. Um, and then there are still going to be people that are going to acquire it even uh, with uh, vaccination, right? More than likely, we know that the seasonal flu vaccine that we get, while it certainly helps prevent the spread, there are still people who get the flu shot and get the flu. Um, and then there are the group of people that are not able to get vaccinated. So they're either too young, which of course we don't know what the age guidelines on um, a COVID vaccine are going to be. Um, but for the flu vaccine, it's, you know, it's usually six months and older. So our, our little ones that are, are smaller than that. Um, and then folks that have had um, um, allergies or adverse reactions to other types of vaccines may not qualify to get this type of vaccine. So a treatment is also important. And so both of these things you probably heard floating around the media actually today uh, just released a couple about an hour before I went on the air. So I haven't read everything about it yet. But one of the uh, drug companies actually had some promising data coming forth from one of their vaccine trials. And we have to remember that there's lots of different institutions that are working on on vaccines and um, and and checking to see if they're first efficacious. Do they do they make, make an immune response? So with a vaccine, usually what we're doing is giving some of some type of antigen associated with with the pathogen and getting the body to initiate an immune response and make antibodies to that. And so this particular company reported that, you know, the, the small group of, of people that they have tested on did make antibodies, right? So that's kind of the first step is, yay, it looks like it's going to um, mean that it triggered the immune system appropriately and the antibodies have been produced. Now, the next step is going to be, does that actually mean that um, it protects you from getting the infection. And then we've got uh, to look at the safety of it, right? So does it make antibodies? Does it uh, keep you from getting the illness? And then are there any adverse um, side effects above what we normally see, like redness and, and pain and, and that kind of thing? And then the treatment, well, let's think about treatment that we use for seasonal influenza. And I keep comparing them not because they're the same, but because they're both viruses. And they, so they are different than when we think about strep throat and those types of things that we use antibiotics for. Um, when we do treatments for influenza, largely they're symptomatic, right? So we make sure that we're treating the fever and the muscle aches and the discomfort. And that's the same with, with COVID. You know, we're still managing um, the fever and the, and the pain, as well as dehydration and that kind of stuff. And then there are antiviral medications. And so with antiviral medications, it's usually not a cure per se. Those 
usually shorten maybe the duration of symptoms and make them less severe. Um, so when we think about Tamiflu or Zofluza, the, the kind of two big ones that we use with seasonal influenza, we have to give them within a certain uh, amount of time from when symptoms were developed. And then we it just kind of shortens the the duration of the flu, usually by a couple of days. So there's um, the drug that we may have heard about being tested and, and used is remdesivir. That's the uh, antiviral medication that we've seen talked about with COVID-19. I think it's important to realize that remdesivir is not a new drug per se. So it's not something that just got developed for COVID-19. It's been around for several years in, in an experimental nature. And in particular, it was trialed during Ebola um, because there was some initial data that thought it would be effective against Ebola, but the actual outcomes didn't really support its um, use, widespread use in Ebola. Uh, but the clinical trials that are being run now and the things that are being looked at with remdesivir, I I'm cautiously optimistic about it. So when we look at um, kind of the the most publicized uh, trial coming out with remdesivir, they looked at kind of two endpoints. They looked at um, time to recovery. So, you know, how long did it take people who received remdesivir and those who did not to recover or, or, or their symptoms to lessen and go away with COVID? Um, and then the other endpoint was kind of survival. You know, did it make a, a difference in terms of mortality? And so, it's always important when you're looking at percentages to really know what the raw numbers mean as well. So when you read the headline for remdesivir, it says it improves time time to recovery by 31%. And so that sounds like just a ton, right? You know, uh, with that. But when we look at it, it shortens the duration from about 15 days in people who didn't receive remdesivir to 11. Um, days and folks that did receive remdesivir. So about four days shorter. So absolutely, that's a great thing and a win. It's just important to kind of know what we're talking about there. And then the, the mortality rate between people who received remdesivir and those that didn't um, was 8% versus 11.16%. So it looks like it, it, it did help in kind of shortening and helping with survivability a little bit there. So that's kind of where we are in terms of treatment where we, what we don't know is if this drug would, and probably not, or, or any other type of drug would, could be used as a prophylactic, meaning if you were exposed to the disease, could you then take it to hopefully prevent the development of symptoms? We see that sometimes with Tamiflu, you know, if you're, kid got diagnosed with the flu, and then sometimes the parent will get put on Tamiflu to hopefully prevent the, the infection from becoming symptomatic, but we just don't know about that one yet. All right, we've got Sue from Beaumont on the line, so let's go talk to Sue. Good morning, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Well, I want to ask you a silly question, okay? All right, I'm ready for it, I think. <laughs> Do I need to get another cup of coffee? No, no. Uh, myself and, and, and three other people were having lunch, and we're all eating the same thing. Now, this is silly, but uh, two of us, our nose started to run when we eat, and the other people did not. And they say it, it runs their family, the nose runners, when you eat. I, I said, well, trying to be, you know, sound intelligent. I said, oh, that's called rhinophagia. But I don't know if that is that the right name for it. Is it rhinorrhea or rhinophagia? What do you call it when your nose runs when you eat? 
That's called gustatory rhinitis. Oh, gustatory rhinitis. Okay, I, I told him the wrong thing then. <laughs> That's all right. You sounded very fancy. What what causes that? Um, it's a, it's a vasomotor response that some people have in um, in response to food that causes the the vessels in the nose usually to kind of dilate and get leakier. Um, it's it's kind of a analogous to when people eat maybe hot like pot peppers and they kind of get that reaction going on, but some people get it just in response to regular food. I'm actually one of those folks who gets a little bit, a little bit drippy yeah. uh, when they eat. That was probably a little bit too much information for everybody on a Monday morning, but there you go. It's out there. Gustatory rhinitis. Okay. Well, thank yes, you. Ma'am. You're welcome. All right. We're going to go back to the phones and talk with George and Jackson. Good morning, George. Yes, this is George. I'm, uh, I think I got my vaccine shot for COVID-19 last week. Doesn't sound very possible or practical, but if you'd read an article in the Northside Sun written by Mr. Wise in the recent edition, he goes through what happened in Hong Kong where they only had six deaths during COVID-19, their experience there. Just about everybody that had it as well. And they had some 30 or 40 years ago a big measles pandemic, and they gave everybody in the country over a period of a few years the measles shots. We are now giving to our children. They're called MMR, mumps, mm-hmm. measles, and rubella. Mm-hmm. And they, they credit that for them really not having an epidemic in Hong Kong. Korea had a similar situation. I don't think they were quite as aggressive as Hong Kong was. But uh, it's, you think we all know now that uh, they, too, handled it pretty well and didn't have the outbreak that we had. But anyway, we had the big outbreak. But our break point was about 50 years old where we, people started getting in trouble. And about 50 years ago is when we started giving this MMR vaccine to our children. And those children are now about 50 years old. So those people... Uh, at the uh, younger age, under 50, had protection. Us older folks that are older 50 maybe had protection, probably didn't. At any rate, I hope I have protection now for my uh, shot I got yesterday. The bad part, it cost $100 out of pocket, and the insurance doesn't cover it. But uh, at any rate, I hope everybody would read that article and you better understand what I'm saying if you read uh, Mr. Wise's letter to the editor in the Dostock. Well, I will definitely go read that. Um, I would caution you not to reduce your infection control measures that you're hopefully doing, your hand washing and avoiding large crowds and, you know, wearing a mask when out. Um, Because, you know, I haven't seen the science on that. I need to dig in and look a little bit further on that. It doesn't gel with my brain just right off the bat knowing what I know about the MMR vaccine just in in the way it's stored so MMR vaccine is a live virus vaccine and so it's actually frozen like we freeze that and store it in the freezer and then have to reconstitute it reconstitute it right before giving whereas um more seasonal flu vaccines and the type of vaccine that I would expect to confer immunity for COVID-19 would be stored at a um, much warmer temperature, certainly not room temperature, but refrigerated temperature 
um, to ensure stability uh, of that particular vaccine. So I'm going to go read that article. I'm going to do a little bit more dig in there and see if anything fleshes out. If it does, I'll bring it next week and we'll talk about it on the show. But thank you so much for that call and making me making me think extra this morning. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we've been taking your questions and comments today via the phone line. That's one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 as well as interacting over on Facebook at Healthy Habits with Josie. I think we've got a caller on the line. We're going to go to Hattiesburg and talk with Eric. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I would sure. like to know if there's uh, going to be some development for antibody testing for those who may have been exposed and had asymptomatic conditions. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, we had a caller a little earlier that had a similar question, but kind of recapping that we had. um, So when we talk about antibodies, there are kind of two big ones that we look at in antibody testing, IgG and IgM. IgM is usually the one that shows up with an active infection. And then IgG is the one that comes um, kind of and, and shows that there was a past infection. With, with stuff. And so those are kind of the two tests that we're looking at. There are some commercially available tests um, that are, are out there. Some of them are testing for just IgG. Some of them test for IgM and IgG um, and usually require a, a blood sample. So from a finger prick, something like that. Um, there have been issues with the accuracy of those tests. So when we look at tests, we look at things that are, we look for something called false negative so meaning the test comes back negative when actually the individual has the antibody or the disease or whatever we're testing for, um, and then false positives. So it comes back and says that, yes, we do have this, um, but in reality, we don't. And so that's the mix that's going on right now is trying to get a reliable test that has good, we call that sensitivity and specificity, as well as um, ease of use and being able to distribute it widespread. We see a lot of stuff in in the media about, you know, this area getting antibody testing and and what that. And so in smaller areas or in concentrated areas, it may be feasible to get, you know, a a large chunk of people 
tested. The average widespread community doesn't have that capability yet, but that's certainly somewhere where we're moving um, into is being able to offer antibody testing on a larger scale. We just always want to make sure that the tests we're using are um, reliable so that we don't give someone false um, sense of security there. Thank you very much. Do you know if that will be the time is not really predictable as when it'll be ready. No, because they're still, you know, still doing testing. Okay. There's lots of different um, companies that are out there putting these tests out. And so the, you know, each one of them will have to give sensitivity and specificity data so that we know we're picking um, appropriate testing there. There are some that are already available uh, now. You just have to be um, cautious in the interpretation of the results. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, Kevin, want to go over to our email questions? Yes, we got uh, about uh, three and a half minutes left. All right, three and a half minutes left. So um, we had one that came in through the week last week that asked about a cast iron skillet. And so it said they do a lot of cooking in a cast iron skillet, but that they had heard that that might be detrimental. And so what, what was the deal on that? And so the kind of controversy that has surrounded cast iron skillet cooking um, through the years has been iron content. And so there is um, been thought to be the potential for iron to kind of leach from the pan into the, the food. And so for the vast majority of people, that's not a problem, right? Um, for me, I don't eat meat. So I cook a lot of things in a cast iron skillet because I'm getting a little bit of extra iron that way. But um, there are a group of people who have liver issues or something called hemochromatosis, which is a, an iron storage issue where they store too much. And so that could potentially be a problem there. But not all food that's cooked in a cast iron skillet um, absorbs any iron from the skillet. It's usually things that are more liquidy and more acidic. So think tomato sauces and that kind of stuff are going to pull more um, iron from from the skillet, whereas things like if you're doing a quesadilla and you've got a tortilla or you're doing a grilled cheese, something like that, they're not going to pull um, as much iron there. And then it really depends on the study you're looking at. Some show much more iron content in foods. Some don't show as much, and it's thought to just be kind of a concentration based on the type of, of food. So for the average person, cooking in a cast iron skillet's probably not an issue there. Um, and I love it because mine is well seasoned from many, many, many years of usage um, from my grandmother and then my mother and then mine. And so I don't have to use any oil when I cook in the cast iron skillet because it's essentially nonstick for itself as well as holding holds its heat very, very well. So um, I get nice little brown crispiness around the edges on on things there and even cooking. Um, so all that to say, it's probably not an issue for your average person using a cast iron skillet. All right. Can you do another one in about a minute or so? Well, let's just see. I'll talk super fast. It was the Facebook question that came in and said, you know, that I always tell people to listen to the science and that's true. 
Um, but they're confused because the CDC and the WHO tend to disagree on the benefit of masks. So which one is better science? And I think it's important to look at what audience we're talking to. The WHO is going to be giving out global advice. The CDC is going to be giving out advice for the largely for the United States. And then your individual um, departments of health are going to be giving out advice that is appropriate for what's going on in your particular area, because outbreaks are at different stages and trends mission is at different rates in different areas. So I go by uh, what the Mississippi State Department of Health is recommending because they are looking at the data that's right here, right now for us about preventing the spread. And it does recommend the use of masks when in public spaces, especially when we can't do appropriate social distancing. The use of that mask is not to prevent you from getting it, but it's to prevent you from spreading it if you are asymptomatic. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing the leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.